we make lots of decisions in everyday life. Many are simple. Should I get that donut with my coffee or buy the fruit salad? But what about those tough life-changing decisions? Should I ask her to marry me? Do I stay in college or start a business? I've saved some money to invest, but I can't decide on what stocks to pick. My friend made money after picking a few tickers he saw on Reddit, but was the money-making outcome based on a quality decision process or just luck? Maybe I'll go with my gut. I'm essentially betting I make the right decision, but I choose to call it investing because it feels better. For most of us, absent from our education was a course on decision-making that could have helped us develop a set of skills to navigate in a world that is not black and white. The world has vast shades of gray, making it challenging to chart a course to an expected outcome with precision. There's always uncertainty. Fortunately for us, in this episode, we'll hear from an expert skilled in the science of decision-making. Annie Duke, best-selling author of Thinking in Bets and her latest book, How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices, shares insights based on her years of success as a poker player combined with her understanding of cognitive science. Andy won more than $4 million in tournament play, including winning the World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions and the NBC National Heads Up Poker Championship. She retired from the game in 2012, and besides writing best-selling books, she is a sought-after speaker and consultant on the subject of decision-making. Before starting her poker career, Annie graduated from Columbia University with degrees in English and Psychology. She was awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship to study Cognitive Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Annie is co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit group based on empowering students through decision skills education. She is on the board of directors of the Franklin Institute and is a member of the National Board of After School All-Stars. We are thrilled to have her on our podcast series. Annie, welcome to our podcast series. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you to New York Tech. I'm excited. Uh, we're excited to have you also. And, you know, I provided our listeners with a glimpse of your background, but I'd like you to provide a brief summary of your journey from pursuit in academics to becoming a champion poker player. Yes, it's a very weird journey. I'm going to give you the super short story. You could delve in farther if you want, but I was pursuing my PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. I did five years there studying cognitive science with the amazing Wyland Henry Blakeman. And right at the end, I got sick. I'd been, I'd been struggling with like a chronic issue and it became very acute. And so I had to actually cancel all the job talks that I had lined up because I was planning to go become a professor. And it was very clear that I just kind of needed to take a year off, which I did, you know, planning to go back and be a professor. So during that year off, I just needed money. And so I started playing poker in the meantime, you know, in a situation where it was just a year off, I wasn't going to reboot a career. So, you know, whatever I was doing for money needed to have certain qualities to it, the main one being flexibility. I guess like slightly to give people a flavor, because I feel like now it's been 20 years or so that poker was on television. Right. So I think that when you tell people like, oh, I went off to become a poker player, they don't think it's that odd now. Because they're so used to like seeing it on ESPN, but I just want to tell people this was in the 90s <laughs> and there was no poker on television. There was no internet poker. And at the time, people had a really different view of poker. I sort of like correlate it with the view of like pot, for example, right? Which was very firmly and like, oh, you don't do that unless you're a degenerate. So when I told people I was playing poker, it was really like, oh, you're a degenerate. 
the conversation would be like, I'd literally get asked things like, what does your husband do for <laughs> Like, so he has money. You know, obviously it was like fueling my gambling addiction. So anyway, I was doing that in the meantime. It turned out that I really loved the game. I was very successful. And the history is obviously I didn't go back to complete my PhD. So yeah, and then it turned out I had a knack for the game and I really loved it. And I guess the rest is history. I became a world champion. So at what point did you begin to think that, okay, I could wait a minute. I've got all this knowledge and experience in decision-making because, as you point out in your books, and the first book that I had read and that you had put out was Thinking in Bets, and then most recently your book, How to Decide. But at some point you must have thought, gee, I could maybe translate this into a guide to making better decisions. What was that about? What was the genesis of getting into writing that first book? I think that there are a lot of there's just a lot of lessons in the way that I sort of came to that place where I was thinking about that conversation between the two, between poker and cognitive science, behavioral science, behavioral economics, judgment and decision making, and really thinking about how those disciplines like informed each other in a way that would give kind of, I think, a unique viewpoint and framing Mm. for the problem that I really wanted to start communicating. So let me try to sort of ground that for you. What happened was a friend of mine, Eric Seidel, maybe the best poker player that ever lived, but certainly one of the best poker players that has ever been. So he knew a lot of options traders. One of them had founded a hedge fund and had asked Eric actually to come speak to his traders about how poker might inform thinking about risk. And so he didn't really want to do it, but he actually recommended me for that. Because he knew that when I was at Penn for those five years, obviously for three of those, I was actually teaching classes. So when I got asked to do that, I said, yes, I thought that would be kind of interesting. So for a long time, I was kind of doing two things at once where I was giving these talks, which then developed into like some consulting business when people wanted to sort of dive deeper with me. And I was obviously playing poker at the same time. And those two things overlapped for 10 years. And then eventually I decided that I really wanted to dive headlong into that. And that's what ended up developing into thinking and bets is I got really interested in the science communication, but I had done it kind of, I'd started off with that as an experiment. Right. And it's an experiment that ended up turning into a career that then caused me to actually pivot completely out of poker. One of the things that you pick up immediately in thinking in bets, and it's probably a lot of what our listeners don't really understand is that decision making is a skill set and it's something that could be learned yes. and we talk a lot about with students and entrepreneurs and leaders that I speak with and when it comes to decision making we don't do a lot of training in a function that is actually very important in our lives yeah I would actually say we do no training it's kind of interesting it's like when I talk to people about their K-12 experience and I say hey did you ever take a class in decision making, like how to make a decision. I haven't met anyone yet who was like, yes, I had a class in that. I think that we just kind of assume that people are sort of learning it along the way. So this is something like people have been really thinking really deeply about, but somehow it hasn't made it into our educational system. And that goes back to something you talked about in the book that we don't allow ourselves to do a lot. And that's reflection. I mean, when you talk about learning from experience, and then you talked about not getting so wrapped up in resulting and sort of looking at your decision-making process based on the outcome without really analyzing the process that got you there. Yes, this is one of the most robust findings in like the cognitive bias literature, which is resulting. So let me show you some example what resulting is. Like I challenge people to try this. Like if you're ever in a group of people, just ask everybody to go around the table and say what's their best decision and what's their worst decision of the last year. And 
just sit back and listen to what they say. So this really gets to the heart of resulting is that when you ask them what their best decision was, they identify their best outcome. And then obviously there's an assumption there that it must have been a great decision that led to that great outcome and vice versa. If you have a really bad outcome, that must mean that your worst decision preceded that. But obviously that's such a silly in a world where there's, first of all, hidden information. Like sometimes you just don't have all the information you need to decide. So you can make a really good decision given the information that you have at the time and still have a terrible outcome. So an example of that kind of hidden information problem, actually, I would put like Hillary Clinton in 2016 fits firmly in that category. People looked at her campaign strategy, where obviously we know that she didn't spend a lot of time campaigning in Wisconsin, Philadelphia, and Michigan, rather Pennsylvania and Michigan. She didn't spend a lot of time there. And people look at that and say, you know, this was one of the worst campaign decisions in history. It was such a bad decision. But what we forget is that at the time, the polling data, which was pretty consistent, had those three states well out of the margin of error. So she actually campaigned kind of according to those polls, didn't spend a whole lot of time in Michigan and Wisconsin, where she was very far ahead, and then spent a little bit more time in Pennsylvania, where it looked like it was a little tighter, but still pretty far as margin of error. So it's super unreasonable to expect that she could have known that that polling error could have occurred. Yeah, but you also mapped it out, and I kind of like that little quadrant map that you put together, which was a skill gets you an earned reward, or you get to just desserts. You have Mm -hmm. dumb luck and bad luck. You have to analyze based on the process that you're going through and how you arrived at that decision Mm -hmm. and then look at what the outcome was from that. And I think that goes back to, again, just having people reflect on the decisions that they make. And we don't give ourselves a lot of time for that. In fact, there's an expectation in our society that we're supposed to think fast, on our feet, and have the answers immediately. And oftentimes we don't take the time to really do thoughtful analysis. And in one of the areas that I thought was sort of spot on in terms of good decision making is understanding that the world isn't black and white, that there are shades of gray. And you have to be somewhat probabilistic in terms of what the probability of outcomes are going to be in order to get to that bit, to that good decision, let's say. And I think it's sort of twofold. One is we we need to understand that there are a lot of different ways that the world can turn out. And we need to sort of take a stab at what the probability of those different outcomes are, right? That, that's kind of back to that idea of like, it's really hard to understand like how you would compare two options that you might be considering. If you're not thinking about what are the different ways that the future can unfold? What are the probabilities of each of those futures, right? I'm not, I'm not exactly sure how you would otherwise compare. Of course, we don't teach that. So that gets into this kind of shades of gray, right? You're not just in terms of, you know, the outcome isn't determined, but in terms of you're making some sort of educated guess at what you think the reasonable set of outcomes are. You're making an educated guess at what you think the probability of those outcomes are. And we need to be willing to do that. And what I find is that when we get into that kind of educated guess zone, right, which is like, well, I'm not exactly sure, but if I had to give my best guess, here's what it is. There's sort of the lower bound, what's the smallest amount I think it could be and what's the biggest amount I think it could be. And approach it as a narrowing down which has a tremendous amount of value, that when you get into that world, people sort of have two reactions to it when they can really feel how subjective the judgment is. They either say, screw it, I can't possibly know. So either I'm not even going to try, like I'd just be guessing, or I'm just going to go with my gut. Your gut is, in some sense, implicitly making those types of calculations. So we ought to make those explicit so that we can actually sort of find when there are errors. And we know that a lot of the errors that occur in a more reflexive system, 
your kind of gut decision making. So that's one way that we act. Right. The other way we react to it, though, is the other extreme, which is like imposing false certainty on the world. And we know those who are like, I guarantee it. I know for sure. This is definitely the right answer. And that's just as bad. So being overly certain is just as bad as underrepresenting how much you know about something. And what we want to try to do when we're making decisions is get into the sweet spot of trying to accurately represent what we know. And there's so many good things that come out of that. One is that obviously you get view of the future that's more accurate to what your knowledge is. But the other thing is that when you start to think this way, and this is the way that you start to communicate to people, like, you know, I think this company is going to produce 100 widgets in the next six months, but the lower bound is 70 widgets and the upper bound is 150 widgets. But now what I've done is as a communicator to you, as someone who should be partnering in the decision with me, I've told you a whole bunch of stuff. I've told you what my best guess is. I've told you what the sort of how much certainty I have around that guess. So the wider the range between the lower and the upper bound that I offer is an expression of how much certainty I have. So I've sort of properly represented that to you. And in doing so, I've put you in a position where you don't feel like if you offer me new information that you're telling me that I'm wrong, which is something that, that people don't like to do on teams very much. They don't like to say you're wrong. So by expressing myself in a way where I'm not asserting that I'm right, I'm telling you this is kind of what I know, this is sort of my educated guess about it, I'm kind of inherently asking you for help, inviting you into the process in a way where you're going to be more likely to offer me the information that you know that's going to help me sort of get more educated into this guess that I have about what the future might be holding. And that's going to improve the decision-making of me, but also any kind of group decision that you do is not going to improve. Yeah. And one of the things that you spoke a lot about in terms of that diversity of opinion and the importance of, and I think the term you used was having that echo chamber where all you hear is feedback of the way you think, as opposed to hearing new ideas or a new approach or do a new thought process. Yeah. So this is kind of naturally the way that groups interact with each other. We tend to seek out people who hold our opinion. And it's particularly bad because whenever we get in a group and we have other people involved in the decision process, we get the illusion that we've gotten other people's opinion. So the decision will get sort of certified in a way for being better quality because we had more people involved in the decision. But if the group is an echo chamber, it's not, the decision's not going to be better than one person. In fact, it's probably going to be worse because those viewpoints will get extreme by being repeated back to each other. So that's number one is we tend to seek out people who have the same viewpoints as we do. But the other thing is that the way that uh, groups tend to operate and we tend to communicate with each other in groups also tends to create echo chambers. So when we ask people's advice, we tend to offer our opinion first and people will tend to parrot that opinion back to you. It's just kind of the way the social interaction works. This is particularly problematic, by the way, if you're like in a leadership position mm. because people don't like to disagree with the leader or you might actually be swaying them. You might be convincing them when you're talking. And the cure for that is to get to the outside view, much of which is the way that other people would view the same situation that we're considering. Which if we're in an echo chamber, we're not actually really getting that. It's interesting you framed it that way because we do want that outside view, but many people don't want to feel uncomfortable. And then a lot of people don't want to make mm -hmm. other people feel uncomfortable. So without creating mm -hmm. a little bit of discomfort, all we're hearing is really just what we wanted to hear from the beginning. And we never really get that input. And as you pointed out, what ends up happening is we get together as a group. It's kumbaya. We all agree. And gee, we made the best decision possible when the reality was we really needed to have a meeting because, hey, we all just all think the same way anyway. Yeah. So actually, like your point, 
about discomfort is actually really deep. So I kind of want to like sink my teeth into that a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you talk about the discomfort of being in a group and having a non-consensus opinion, right? And so we don't want to speak those because we're more reluctant to speak those because, you know, part of kind of how we define being a team player, you know, how we define sort of like cohesion in a group is a lot of it is around kind of having the same point of view and agreement. And we can all feel that when we're in meetings and a consensus viewpoint starts to form the velocity that like builds behind that consensus, right? Like the amount of traction that consensus like immediately picks up because it makes us feel good and it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to be the squeaky wheel, right? It's uncomfortable to be the person who sort of has the pessimistic view of something that everybody else is really excited about. Mm. But that discomfort actually like crosses a whole bunch of different problems in decision-making. So the second place that that really appears is that decision-making is really kind of like, I would describe it as like a street fight between the present version of you and the future version of you. Mm. So the simplest way that I can talk about this is like the difference between future you and present you is to think about if you if you had made a commitment to eat really healthy. Obviously, if you're making a commitment to eat really healthy, it's because you'd like to take care of all the future versions of you that are going to benefit from the healthy eating, right? Like 80-year-old Annie is going to be really happy that I was eating healthy, because 80-year-old Annie is going to be like in a lot better shape. And five years from now, Annie is going to be in a lot better shape. But we can feel that battle between the present version of you and those future versions of you that you've made that decision for, like when someone brings the cupcakes into work. It's like, man, I don't want to eat the cupcakes for future me, but mm, present me like really wants to have the cupcakes because it's so yummy. And it's painful and it's really uncomfortable to resist them because they're full of sugar and fat, which we really like. And also everybody's having cupcakes and I want to join in. And what do we do? We eat the cupcakes. Right. And obviously in that particular case, in that street fight, the present version of me has beaten out the future version of me. So we can take that into a decision-making standpoint, which is the input into all of our decisions is really our beliefs. So the quality of our beliefs, like how accurate the things that we believe to be true about the world are, that determines mostly like how good a decision can be. You can have great process and obviously you need great process to marry with, with great information and high quality beliefs. But no matter how good the process is, if the beliefs aren't high quality, it doesn't really matter. You're not going to get a good decision out of the process. So now we can see this kind of street fight again between the present version of you and the future version of you, which is if I say, like, I want to make sure that over my lifetime, I become a better decision maker. What goes along with that is that over my lifetime, that means that the quality of the things that I believe to be true about the world must improve. And then what falls out of that is that that means that sometimes I'm going to find out that things that I believe are wrong, partially or wholly wrong. Right. And I'm going to have to update my beliefs. Or sometimes it's going to turn out that I'm going to figure out that I might have had a really great result, but it turned out that the decision that I made was pretty bad that led to it. And I'm going to have to admit that. And I'm going to have to figure out where I went wrong and so I could improve going forward. Sometimes it's going to turn out that I didn't do the work and there was information that I could have found out that would have actually helped my decision and I didn't go find it and I could have found it. I'm going to have to admit that. I'm going to have to figure that out so that I can improve my decision making going forward. It happens when we're faced with those kinds of decisions. When we're faced with information that would be corrective to a belief that we already have, or we're faced with the choice between saying, did I make a bad decision or did I just get unlucky, right? Mm -hmm. If I choose unlucky, I don't have to feel the pain of having made a mistake if I choose unlucky. Likewise, if I have a great outcome, I've got that same choice. 
And if I choose, I made a great decision, I get to feel good about myself. But if that's not the right answer, that's bad for your decision making going forward. That's going to make you really unhealthy. It's just like eating a cupcake. But that's basically what we do all the time is that we choose the thing that's going to make us feel good about ourselves, that's going to update our self-image in a positive way, that's going to improve our self-narrative in the moment. But what we're sacrificing is the quality of all of the rest of the decisions that we make going forward because we're not taking that opportunity because we're trying to avoid that discomfort of feeling like we made a mistake or feeling like something that we believe was wrong. We're trying to avoid that discomfort so much that we won't do it. Right. And that really frustrates the ability to improve our decisions. You really got to the essence of some of the things that we're taught in terms of critical thinking skills, and that is understanding our own inherent biases and our over-reliance on heuristics and those little cognitive shortcuts that we use in life to come to decisions. And the way we frame data that comes in, we tend to put them in the boxes that we're most comfortable with without really analyzing what it is. And one of the things I want, I'm want i going to ask you to talk a little bit about is helping us understand our own biases and how that affects our decision-making. Obviously, we've been talking a lot about, in this country, we've been having the conversation about bias in the racial sense, but this is yeah. a different type of bias, this cognitive bias, which some of which we've touched on, right? So these are ways that our decision-making or the way that we think about the world is predictably and directionally wrong. And it comes out of two things. One would be heuristics, which are kind of shortcuts that we take in getting toward answers that can cause us to end up with the wrong answer. And then the other just has to do with some of these things that have to do with self-narrative and the way that we sort of view ourselves and the way that we kind of judge our competencies or the quality of our own beliefs or our desire to affirm the things that we already believe. So I'll just give a few examples so that people kind of understand what these are. So on the sort of deeper side that has to do with sort of affirming our own identities, you would have something like confirmation bias, which we've touched on, which is that when we're thinking about sort of that, that exploration of the universe of things that we don't know, we tend to seek out information that already agrees with us, and we don't notice or we avoid information that disagrees with us. So you know, I would encourage people to like look at their Twitter feed. And I'm betting if you look at your Twitter feed, what you'll see is that, you know, particularly on the news side of your Twitter feed, that you're seeing a lot of news that kind of agrees with your worldview, and you're not seeing a lot of news that disagrees with your worldview. Now, I'm not saying there that somebody should interact with people who aren't arguing in good faith. But there are plenty of people who are arguing in perfectly good faith who would hold different opinions than you do. And it's really good to interact with them, but we tend not to. And that just has to do with like it feels good to confirm the things that we already believe to be true about ourselves. So we have those things that are like confirmation bias, motivated reasoning, which is sort of motivated reasoning about the world to confirm a conclusion that you've already got to or a belief that you already have. You know, obviously confirmation bias, disconfirmation bias. These are kind of deeply in the identity world. There's also illusion of control, which is that we believe that we can control outcomes more than we can or something like naive realism is pretty interesting this goes kind of deeply into this identity category which is we believe that the things that we believe to be true about the world the conclusions that we've come to the information that we have that's actually what is true of the world and so if somebody else doesn't hold the same belief that we do we believe that they're either ignorant or evil one of the two now, that is a pretty good description of our politics, right? So right. those are those types of biases. So the other way that you can kind of end up with these directionally wrong conclusions is through like heuristics, which are kind of like quick and dirty shortcuts. And resulting actually kind of fits into this category. 
So when we think about resulting, like why is it that we think if somebody, if there's a really bad outcome, that it must have been a bad decision? Like when we're all kind of aware that there's luck, right? And that kind of goes into this heuristic, which is, well, look, if you think about decision quality, it's really complicated uh, to try to to sort of reconstruct that. Well, that's hard and it's really complex. So when we're making complex judgments, that feel like they're kind of mushy, like as we talked about before in that in-between range where we know we're going to be like in the gray area or very complex, we'll often do a substitution in order to simplify. And the substitution in the case of resulting would be it turned out a disaster. And that is really simple to figure out, right? We know what the outcome is. And so we basically judge the outcome, the quality of the outcome, and we substitute that judgment for what the quality of the decision is. You can see how that type of heuristic or substitution would happen, for example, in a hiring process where maybe, you know, you're hiring someone for a complicated role. It's obviously a complex decision with very little information and they come in and they interview and they're super charismatic and you get along with them. And you now substitute kind of their charisma and the chemistry that you have for judging whether they're a really high quality candidate. All of these, what you can see is like these are obviously errors. And they're directionally predictable. And that's where we get into the, you know, bias really frustrating our decision making. What I'm feeling here, especially as, as we talk to not only to students, but also our podcast is geared towards leaders and entrepreneurs who probably did not get a formal course in decision making. And what I loved about the book, especially How to Decide, is you sort of distilled a lot of everything that I read in Thinking in Bets and gave us a nice, interesting roadmap to follow. I was thinking like, you know, gee, you give us a lot of tools there, but I I want people to understand that it's work. It's understanding how you make decisions, looking back on the decisions that you've made. You got to put some work into it if you're going to get a better outcome. I feel like one of the things that I really want to get across is that the work is kind of front-loaded in the sense that you have to take the time to understand what a really high quality decision process would look like Mm -hmm. if you were to go step by step, very clear, this is what you have to do. So that's going to be learning how to be really good at thinking about mapping out simple decision trees, starting to think about decisions as forecasts and how do you think about the probability and the payoff of different outcomes and how would you weigh options against each other? How do you actually construct group decisions in order to instead of minimizing the amount of dispersion of opinion that you see in the group, that you actually maximize the amount of dispersion of opinion that you see. These are all things that like take practice and time. And so there's some work up front. But once you've done that work, this actually makes your decisions faster. It makes them more efficient because you're more able to hone in on what matters. You get much more efficient at framing the decision in a way that's actually useful, that will speed up your ability to get to a good answer faster. So even when you're making a decision that's of high consequence, this is going to make that process more efficient. And it's actually eventually, and relatively quickly, it's going to speed your decisions up. But then aside from that, once you really understand what this robust process would look like, it allows you to approach your decisions by figuring out which ones should you actually spend a lot of time on and which ones can you speed up? Which ones can you go pretty fast and dirty on? And what you're going to find out is that there's a lot of decisions that you're lingering on, that you're spending a lot of time trying to sort of quote unquote get to a right answer when that's actually not a good use of your time, either because getting to like a perfectly right answer doesn't really matter or because you fooled yourself into thinking that there's a right answer. That kind of goes to that black and white thinking Mm -hmm. that we talked about and not being willing to live in the shades of gray. And that as far as you've gotten is actually good enough for you to be able to go ahead 
and decide and you can get out of those sort of analysis loops that slow everybody down. So I think that when people hear you talk about this type of decision making, that their instinct is to say, oh, that's going to mean I'm going to be so slow. But it's actually the opposite. It's once you really understand what a good decision looks like, and once you understand how to implement a good decision process, it will actually make your decisions more efficient. It will make them more accurate. It will speed them up. Annie, that was great sort of summarizing the importance of getting to better decisions and having a process to get there. I have a couple of questions for you. And the first one is, what one word describes Annie Duke? Oh, (laughs) I've never been asked that. That's a really good question. What one word describes me? Okay, I so I think this is going to surprise people, particularly people who've just listened to me talking on this podcast. <laughs> but I would say the one word that describes me is silly. Silly, okay. Yes, I'm actually like when I'm not talking about decision making, I'm really silly. <laughs> like, I don't know if I had to think about myself. I, you know, maybe that's the way that I'd like to think about myself, and other people would have a different viewpoint of me. But I feel like silly would be the way that I would describe myself. Describes maybe eclectic. You. I don't know. Eccentric. Well, those words, eclectic and eccentric, just sort of defines you as somebody that has a different way of thinking, a different approach to things. Yeah. And the same thing with being silly. So then the last question I have for you. So what's the advice that you have for future leaders and budding entrepreneurs out there? Oh, yeah. So I would say that the advice that I have is you have to embrace the uncertainty. You know, we talk about the world moving at a really fast pace, which obviously dials the uncertainty up a little bit that discomfort problem that we talked about before. Mm. And the people who really embrace it, who really understand that the world is uncertain, and they really try to sort of get a view of all the different sort of permutations that the world could take and trying to figure out how you would make decisions into that and what it means for the type of species that you should have about what's going to work and what isn't going to work. I think that they just end up doing better. You know, one of the things that I think about is a memo that went out internally in Apple when they were releasing the iPod. And I think this shows a particular way of thinking that's really embracing uncertainty because when they released the iPod, along with it, they said, this device is going to become obsolete. Hmm. Um, we think it's going to become obsolete because phones are going to take over this technology and we'll be the ones to make it obsolete. And when you compare that to Blockbuster, for example, hmm. right, who really made this big commitment to people go into a store, they go get a VHS tape, eventually some sort of CD sort of thing or Blu-ray, and they're going to bring it home and they're going to put it inside of a machine. And this is what we're committed to, right? That even as you sort of see the world changing, they they kind of keep on that commitment as if they're going to be able to continue to make that work. Whereas someone who comes into it and say the world changes and we want to be the ones who are anticipating that change and we want to be thinking about all the different ways that the world can change and embrace that as part of our decision philosophy, I think that particularly in the world as it is today, those are the people who are going to thrive. Got it. Wow. That's fantastic insight. And Annie, I can't thank you enough for joining us on this podcast series. And I think um, our listeners really got a lot out of this. And I thank you again. Appreciate it. Thank you. In this episode, Annie described the things that hold us back from making quality decisions. For example, we are plagued by our inherent cognitive biases, those strong preconceived notions about people or subjects based on information we have or believe to have whether true or not. These preconceptions of the world around us lead to subjective rather than objective thinking. For example, confirmation bias, our tendency to seek out information that supports something we already believe. Or hindsight bias, the I knew it all along effect. 
is our perception of events to be more predictable after they happen. We discussed resulting in which we evaluate the quality of our decision process based on the outcome. But if we're going to train ourselves to be better decision makers, we need to start mapping our process. Look at the various future outcomes and determine probabilities for each potential result. Once the outcome occurs, we can see if we've earned a positive result from a quality process or dumb luck. And if we get a negative result, was it bad luck or was it poor decision quality? As Annie pointed out, becoming a better decision maker is front loaded with work. Take the time to understand what a high quality decision process looks like. Think about mapping out simple decision trees, starting to think about decisions as forecasts, as probabilities and payoffs of different outcomes. And how would you weigh options against each other? Improving your decision process takes time and practice. There's some work up front, but once you get good at it, this actually speeds up your ability to arrive at a quality decision faster and more efficiently. Thanks to Annie Duke for providing those valuable lessons and for sharing her insights. This podcast is executive produced by John Rebecki and New York Institute of Technology in conjunction with the School of Management and the Office of Strategic Communications and External Affairs. The Director of Professional Enrichment and producer of this podcast is Deborah Cohn. Our marketing and social media strategist is Petra Shantaraga. Our audio editor and mixer is Brian Falk from Abacus Entertainment. Special thanks to Constance Talatia and Paulina Lamanier for all their support. Until next time.